Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that make sense of the world. I'm Maria Sachiko Sassiri. And I'm Naran Khan. Today, we'll be talking about the notion of restorative justice. Whether in the courts, in schools, or in our personal lives, restorative justice offers an alternative to traditional models of punishment. It's anything but an eye for an eye. Instead, it lets those who have done wrong sit down with victims and members of the community to sort out a resolution that makes sense and seems just for everyone involved. Sounds perfect, right? Why don't we always do this? Today we're going to talk about the benefits and drawbacks of restorative justice, and we are so, so, so excited to do it with Beth Compa. Hi, Beth. Hi. (laughs) Beth is a prisoner's rights attorney based in Louisiana, and she's also one of my dearest friends from law school. And she has a history background in war and conflict resolution. Lucky for us, she's a friend of the show and pitched this topic. So heads up, if you have topics you'd like us to do, we love listener ideas. I can't express how thrilled we are to have you here, Beth. Welcome. I'm just as thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Started, Beth, can we like just talk through what restorative justice might look like, kind of applied? Absolutely. So, I think it's it's helpful to kind of think of it through a specific example. So, let's say, for instance, that a teenage boy steals some money from an old woman in his neighborhood. The criminal justice system might impose a punishment according to whatever the juvenile justice laws of the state are, and in some instances, depending on the crime, that might mean going to juvenile detention, facing a bunch of charges, consequences that affect his ability to keep going to school. He may wind up detached from his home community. There may be sort of consequences of this that involve being socially outcast, falling behind in school to a way that's almost impossible to recover from. Juvenile detention centers are sort of notorious places of various traumas and and bad things happening. And so there's all sorts of bad outcomes we can imagine from this particular approach to this sort of incident. And the restorative justice model gives us a totally different way to look at this and to try to essentially restore the balance of the community that was abrogated by this kid stealing this this money. Abrogated as in broken. Great. So... Under a restorative justice model, we might have a mediator come in who can sit down with this boy and with the woman, and maybe with other members of the community as well, kind of talk through what happened, what the outcomes of it were. Uh, Maybe the woman would say she feels less safe in her community now because of this. The boy might articulate that kind of what his motivation was, was that he was trying to impress his friends. Maybe they will find some point of common understanding, like that the woman remembers her beloved younger brother, who when he was 13 years old was kind of doing the same thing, even though it was 65 years ago. And through the process, the goal is that each of the members of this dialogue can come to understand the complexity and the humanity in the other, and from there, look to address the underlying desires and concerns that kind of gave rise to the circumstance that they're in and seek an outcome that will be less punitive and and sort of more positive for everyone involved. Like maybe um, she will ask that 
the money stolen be returned to her. But in addition, she'll ask him to come and help her with yard work for a certain period of time, mm-hmm. help her garden. So she'd actually receive like direct opportunities to be made whole or Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. and it and what started out as a abrogation or a breaking of a community bond can turn into a strengthened community bond through mm-hmm. this process. I love that. Super cool. And it's yeah. actually very helpful to have that like tangible example because I mean I hear the word all the time, like everywhere, and I like kind of know what it means. It sounds positive. It sounds super positive. (laughs) Yeah. It also sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) Right. Which we can get into. Right. Um, So I guess my first question would be for someone who's like not involved in the criminal justice system at all, is to kind of talk through like how this is different from the model that we have right now. Mm -hmm. So I think our current paradigm as far as criminal justice really relies on punishment and focuses on the perpetrator is the bad guy, the victim is worthy of 100% of the public's sympathy, and the function of the criminal justice system is to impose a punishment on this perpetrator for what was done. And so I think restorative justice is really helpful in terms of essentially just complicating that notion of good guys versus bad guys as of um, prison as a place where you can sort of identify who the bad actors are and then banish them to this site that is sort of excluded from the community and then they're over there. We don't have to think about them anymore. We have sort of resolved that problem. That sense of prison serving that function is very much an illusion. The vast majority of people who go to prison will eventually come back into the community. So it's much more, I think, helpful overall, even for something as practical as the public safety standpoint, to understand that purely imposing punishment on people will not necessarily invite the reflection and the community building that can lead to actual progress and, and mutual understanding. Sounds sounds pretty legit to me. Totally. I mean, the kind of the oversimplification part that you're talking about reminds me of, like, I guess, like, the earliest legal code that we have, like, way back from Mesopotamia. Sorry, y'all, I'm going to take it way back. <laughs> um, the Stella of Hammurabi. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, far as I know. I think it's right. (laughs) Um, And this is like rock that has like in cuneiform, I think it is, like chiseled out on it these specific punishments per crime. And so this idea that like here's the crime, here's the punishment, circumstances be damned, let's like move on. That model as like being maybe like the extreme opposite of what you're talking about here. And I think in a lot of people's minds that is still considered to be somewhat appropriate for how we think about giving out punishment for all kinds of things, like both within the like, criminal justice system, but even outside of that too, right? Other kinds of infractions, whether it's like in your parents' home, like you misbehave, then like whatever, like time out, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So this is like a much more nuanced approach. The other, the other thing that really struck me was the way you were talking about um, how blame works. You know, the people who are victims and the people who are um, criminals in this model One thing that is also really different in the current system from how I understand it, um, we had a great conversation with Sabiel, the boo, um, who is amazing, um, about John Rawls, and I learned all the things about John Rawls' theory of justice from Sabiel, so 
And anything I get wrong is not to Bill's fault. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting is a lot of our understandings of justice now are about like kind of crimes not only against victims but against the state. So mm -hmm. like when you commit a crime, it's like you require this like meted out punishment because what you've done is something that like injures like the body of the state. So it's like a bigger structural system. Whereas the restorative justice model seems much more focused on like every individual circumstance is super different. And so every time we have to like reimagine what is the appropriate outcome or the best way to like deal with this situation. Um, and part of it may be punishment, but part of it sounds like is not necessarily. Exactly, exactly. And I think that it's not necessarily sort of abandoning the notion that there should be that sort of the state has a stake in this, but it's it's kind of approaching the state's stake from a different angle, which is if we can make whole the person to whom this was done and we can sort of build this new trust and understanding between these parties that the state overall benefits from You're that. Right, the community strengthened, their opportunities to build up rather than even just make whole. Exactly. Okay. So like using a practice of restorative justice doesn't necessarily mean the hippy-dippy outcomes of mutual understanding leads to more sympathy for the perpetrator, resulting in more leniency for the perpetrator, right? Totally. Like, totally. I, think, I think that's actually something that was kind of new to me. It doesn't preclude actually even more dramatic or complex um, impact. So I was wondering, I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that a little bit in terms of like tangible example. Right. I mean, so there's this idea that when someone is in prison, they're essentially on an extended timeout, like the way that you might give a timeout to a child. Mm -hmm. And it's time for them to think about what they've done and think about why it was bad. And whether that is how people spend their time in prison, who knows? So restorative justice gives an opportunity both for the perpetrator, let's use that word, although it's a bit loaded, to hear directly from the people impacted by their actions of what the impact was and ideally kind of internalize that and, yeah. and, and have that cause for reflection about why actions have consequences and that sort of thing. But it also, and I think this is so crucial, it gives an opportunity for the victims or the people who, you know, against whom this act was committed to have a voice in the process and to articulate what the impact has been on them. Um, and I think that with our sort of current model of criminal justice, there is a tendency to conflate the so-called voice of the victim or the, the will of the family, to conflate that with prosecutorial zeal, essentially that the most just outcome for these victims is the whatever is the most punitive outcome for this defendant. Right. So like max time. Exactly. Exactly. And there are instances where we can see very starkly that that is not always the way that this works. So for instance, there is a case in Colorado where there was a prison guard who was murdered by a prisoner and the prosecutors wanted to seek the death penalty against the person, and the prison guard's parents actually attended the jury jury duty day when the jury was being assembled to voice their opposition to the death penalty and sort of make it clear to the community that don't let them tell you that this is what the family wants. This is absolutely not what we want. And there, and the prosecutors were very much against them playing that role mm -hmm. and 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 you can see in the death penalty world this sort of heads I win tails you lose where if the family mm -hmm. does want to pursue the death penalty then it it's pursued 
on that basis. But if the family doesn't want to pursue the death penalty, then it's sort of like, well, we don't need to worry about what they Mm -hmm. want. This is about the vengeance of the state. One thing I don't want to overstate is actually the power of the listening that goes on and, like, quote-unquote perpetrators hearing from the victims themselves because you might think in our traditional criminal justice system, um, through testimony, through the adversarial process, people have that opportunity. But I don't think listening one-on-one to one another is the same thing as listening to a performance of a testimony to a certain end that aims, you know, that has, like, lawyers involved and is kind of, like, performative in a sense. It, it can truly be authentic, but it may emphasize certain things over others um, because you're trying to achieve a policy end or a, a tangible end arbitrated through a system. And so there's something deeply powerful about having the opportunity to connect on a human level without, yeah, without performance. I mean, I think that that is such a great point. And, you know, it's right there in the name. We have an adversarial system. So yeah. our criminal justice system is sort of uh, we argue we each kind of say our piece we disagree and restorative justice really focuses very affirmatively on this notion of non-judgmental listening articulating one's own truth and even in practical terms the way that it can look is you may have a circle of people where and you'll have an object called the talking piece and you will just pass it around the circle repeatedly and everyone has an opportunity to talk. It has all these mechanisms to really try to ensure a kind of openness and a welcoming, even for people who might be reluctant at first to voice how they feel. Whereas in the courtroom, it's sort of the opposite of that, (laughs) where it's really just sort of staking out sides and uh, viciously going against the the opposition with everything you've got. It's like physicalized even, right? Like this is the prosecution side, this is the defense's side. Exactly. We're all in a circle together. Exactly, exactly. So in short, the system that we have isn't the only way. There is a model of justice called restorative justice that can allow people to directly solve their conflicts in ways that leave those involved feeling heard. Like they have agency um, and like their complex human realities have been taken into consideration. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. So restorative justice sounds like just an amazing model and like there's so many potentials there. But I I do have some questions about it, right? Because um, I can see ways in which it might kind of have built into it other kinds of problems, not the same problems that our current criminal justice system has. So like one thing that jumped to mind for me was like in this kind of circle of conversation, like not to be paranoid and like super mean, but like if you come from a background where you are raised with a lot of emotional intelligence, you're very good at telling your story mm-hmm. and you're very good at articulating your needs and and desires I feel like then you will be much better positioned in this kind of a model to have a better outcome for yourself than say someone who doesn't come from that kind of background and often that's tied to like socioeconomic and educational background and a lot of the kind of structural inequalities that are now part of the problem yeah I can see that being just like continued in this sort of model the opportunities to exercise more discretion certainly open up avenues for manipulation and for like 
just functionally be more advantageous for people who have these like special skills. I think I think there are ways to mitigate that for sure. One of which I think totally became clear to me when you were talking about just the process itself, Beth, is just the power of effective mediation and arbitration here. I mean, just the facilitators involved in any of these processes have to be so deeply skilled, highly, highly skilled. And that's on a personal level, but the systems and structures you set up, because this can manifest in so many different ways depending on the context, even within the criminal justice system or there's any number of things that you can do to help implement a kind of restorative justice mindset or practice into a situation. And the development of that and how it's executed, that itself has to be done so well. And so I think it's only as powerful as as its execution and, and that kind of particular facilitation, which is the the longer I'm in work meetings, like for the rest of my life, like the, the more I'm in these things, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, the facilitator matters so much. The person driving the conversation effectively, soliciting, getting the best out of everyone in the moment. It's just, it's like, like I think I fetishize that it's skill like now. Art. I know, it totally is though. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, as with sort of any, any number of concepts, there is a lot of implementation matters here. Right. And like you're saying, training, experience in this, model and in how to sort of elicit this sort of honest dialogue is mm-hmm. so crucial. And it, we shouldn't think of restorative justice as a sort of hand-holding, <laughs> navel-gazing, oh, everyone just needs an opportunity to talk about their feelings and then all of our problems will be solved. It's not that. It's certainly not that. And and it's very much subject to the same tension that we see in so many other areas of criminal justice, which is the tension between discretion and uniformity or uh, equality, like, exactly, like, just like making ensuring uh, an equal and even-handed handling of like any any particular common situation. Exactly, because you know if we go back to the example we were talking about at the top of the show, this thirteen-year-old boy who steals the money, we could have just wildly different restorative justice outcomes for a sort of kindly old lady who <laughs> will not take too long to to find a soft spot for this maybe troubled kid versus uh, a new gardening partner. Yeah. Right, right, right. Versus someone who maybe carries a lot of bitterness in their heart for whatever valid reasons they have, but but we wouldn't want to totally subject our kids to the whims of the person that they so happened to uh, commit this action against. Totally. And I'm so glad earlier you brought up the, I don't want to call it the hippy-dippy element of this, but just, like, there's a little radar part of my head that's like, ugh, that feels so weird, like, everyone's sharing in this way, like, ugh. But then the other part of me is, like, the sharing isn't about, like, it might include, like, how you feel, but, like, just even a statement of the facts itself, it affords itself, like, I think you can't assume that it's, like, me and I's statement sharing and, like, crying, I think it's really a space. It can, it can be used effectively as a space for like very creative affirmative statements, just like acknowledging a common fact pattern in a way if if you remove that from the adversarial system, I don't mean to keep bringing that up, it just results in a different set of common understandings too. Exactly. One last thing I just wanted to bring up is always something I'm a little sensitive to, which is in an ideal criminal justice system, Um, created by an ideal execution of, like, politics, uh, elected officials putting together laws. Democratic system. Democratic system. Yeah, exactly. 
ideal it's some part of my head thinks like this restorative gen, restorative justice only resonates because our current system is so failing us that in an ideal situation like this would actually be common practice all of the all of the thinking about what the actual end game is establishing the facts in a way that's meaningful having a system that effectively calibrates between being being effectively tailored for specific circumstances, but also trying to think justly about people in similar circumstances. All of that would be done by a system that works, but there's something deep, deeply like just failing about how we're operating now. So, so is this like is restorative justice like an end game in and of itself, or is it is it the band aid to our just like really messed up way of operating and you know not just criminal justice, but like interacting with each other in a conflict oriented space. So. I think that it's both. I yeah. think that um, I, I totally agree with what you're saying about how sort of theoretically our criminal justice system would be aimed at kind of making whole what's been broken by the perpetration of a crime. But we know in practice that it is not nearly that simple or that sort of precise in its execution. Just to cite one example of many people who get sentenced for drug possession to a period of years in prison, it's hard to identify how that is precisely calibrated to restore the harm that was done to society by them having drugs. Anyway. So in that sense, I do think that restorative justice is kind of like a necessary corrective for the state we find ourselves in. You know, Mm -hmm. we can, we can talk until we're blue in the face about how to bring the criminal justice system we currently have into that ideal of like dream worlds. Exactly. Yeah. But but that's sort of not where we're at right now. And restorative justice is because it can be implemented on a small scale, it's kind of one of these things that we can just do and it, and maybe it won't solve every issue along these lines, but mm-hmm. it can solve some of them and, right. and we can learn from that and and find ways to scale that going forward. But I think in the other sense it is an endgame of its own because the roots of restorative justice mm-hmm. find themselves in world cultures, yeah. which, for instance, there's um, Maori influence on the the sort of father of the restorative justice movement. Okay, oh, there, right? American criminologist, and I think he's um he's also Mennonite. So there's like faith, there you know there are faith tradition practices and cultural practices that you know. It's not just, like, made up in reaction to, like, how messed up our system is. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and it, it, it's a, it's helpful to remember that there are other models other than the adversarial model. You know, we, and Noren and I, as lawyers, we are sort of imbued with this idea that the adversarial system is the best because you have zealous representation on both sides and the truth will inevitably come out of that setup. But in practice, we know that that's not at all what happens. There are dramatically underfunded public defense offices across the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many reasons that this is not a balanced adversarial system. And so restorative justice, one of the many things that it offers us is this notion that there are other ways to do this Mm -hmm. and other Mm -hmm. societies have approached these questions differently and perhaps more successfully. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's like one of my personal pet peeves is the idea that out of conflict arises the best. This is like... So many mis- yeah, like I mean, this is like the foundation of certain forms of liberal capitalism and a lot of misconceptions about evolutionary theory. To see it at work in the criminal justice system also can be really frustrating. Mm-hmm. There are other models. I never, I'm sorry, I just never connected it to some of the other examples you just said. Like, I never really thought it's like the same thing that's coming out. Like, you just think, like this, like bloodied fight 
will result in this truth, but the two people in the end are still, like, sitting there with broken noses and, like, a, you know, gouged eye, so. Exactly, like, exactly. Like, you know, to, at what cost? Right. Preach it. Yeah. All right, oh so. Oh gosh, we're such nerds. We're this nerds. is so fun. I love it. Called me, dad was gone. Finally got my dad back. Liver bad, he wouldn't live long. He snatched my dad back. Guidance, I never had that. Streets was my second home. Welcomed me with open arms. Provided a place to crash at. A place to study math fact. Matter of fact, I learned it all. Burnt it all. This music is where I buried the ashes at. Flashback, not having much, not having that. Had to get some holler breasts. You can holler back. So looking at justice using the restorative justice lens isn't just happening in kind of the criminal context. Schools are also labs for reflecting on this and putting it into practice. As you can imagine, or personally may remember, um, <laughs> there are systems of discipline you know, in schools themselves, and, and those lend themselves to really thinking about whether those are the best solutions. So let's, uh, let's maybe throw out some facts and maybe unpack them a little bit. So uh, since 2009, our nation's schools on average have reported an annual suspension rate of 10%, like one in 10 kids get suspended, um, which is the highest it's ever been. And what's really special about that number, actually, is that it's that's just like the number of kids suspended. Like there may be multiple suspensions per kid. So it's, it's probably even higher than that in practice or in perception. A study in a uh, Department of Education report found that 95% of out-of-school suspensions were for slight infractions and misbehavior. So that basically means, like, not actual violent things, but, like, talking back to your teacher. And insubordination, again, that same stuff, is the leading cause of suspensions in middle and high schools, which is, like, super subjective. Yeah, and that, that like, really grabs my heart and makes me really upset because, you know, the idea that not only is are these um, punishments for what are actually minor infractions, so like minor, I guess, quote-unquote crimes in the school context, but they're like so subjective and it has to do with power structures, right? I'm not saying that teachers don't need to be able to manage their classrooms in ways that are beneficial for everybody, but when it comes down to the vast majority of young people being banned from their own educations. That's the part that's crazy. I'm sorry. I just, I'm like, how is the solution to take the people that are trouble and having trouble and being like, you can't be in school and receive the benefit of, of like guidance or whatever else. Like, it's just, it's just exactly. So it's un- almost like a homeopathic approach yeah. to social ills. Totally. Like the poison is the cure. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. It's really destructive. It's like, obviously this is a system that needs some fixing. Yeah. And I mean, and you may remember from our childhood episode in season one, where yeah. we talked about racial innocence and the, particularly like the relationship between race and suspension um, in schools, like the disproportionate number of black and Hispanic uh, kids that get suspended, including at like an outrageously young age. Um, apparently, African-American students are suspended at three times the rate of their white counterparts. And this creates this like discipline gap that really plays into the what's called the school-to-prison pipeline, which tends to be highly racialized, um, very much has to do with the kind of environment, that kind of school that you're coming out of, the environment in that school. So if you think about this idea of like suspending kids for insubordination or for like misbehavior, right, a lot of it has to do with the perception of the kid as opposed to you know, allowing them to be part of a conversation about how or why they're behaving the way they're behaving. Exactly. And there's some really clear parallels between the sort of tough on crime idea of law enforcement, of Mm -hmm. coming down really hard on small infractions. And that's one of the ways that our prisons have 
our prison population has ballooned in the past couple of decades. And in the school instance, the zero tolerance policy that for so many years was the the norm and and considered to be the best That's possible approach. Yeah, exactly. Whereas you find all these terrible outcomes of having kids suspended over these very minor things and have, and of course they have these terrible consequences from being, you know, summarily thrown out of what's supposed to be the place where they're learning how to navigate the world and how to interact with other people. And also there's like, isn't there no evidence that these zero tolerance policies actually help? Exactly. Exactly. And I just, I think like, like detention, like detention seems better than like suspension. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. Like more school. (laughs) Yeah. Or just something else where like you still have a connection. I'm sorry. I don't mean to keep harping on how random suspension seems, but it just seems, and then you come back to school and you're behind and you're confused and like, and you're embarrassed and you're embarrassed or maybe you're not embarrassed, but like it fetishizes the wrong kind of behavior. Like you get to be out of school. Like what on earth? And mm-hmm. the thing about the families of these kids, oh how do you deal with childcare? How do you look after them? I mean, it just like places extra burden on what are usually already overstressed totally. circumstances. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's not to take away from the difficulty of being a teacher and managing yeah. a classroom with a, one or two really disruptive oh students. And there is, that Terrible. does create an unfairness to the Absolutely. other students in the class. Terrible. But for, it's for that exact reason that it's really unfair to have the sort of the only tool in the teacher's mm-hmm. toolkit be suspension right. because mm-hmm. they're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place of punishing this kid or kind of lightly punishing yeah. the, the all of their other students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we might see restorative justice be put into practice in the school context is something like, let's say, two middle school girls get into a fight in the hallway and rather than suspending them, which certainly where I went to middle school and high school would have been the one and only response, the restorative justice would invite them to sit down together. And in places where the model has been fairly well developed, they will have student mediators who lead the dialogue between the students. And that, I think, is also really crucial because it gives the students a sense of agency that we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. that's so Mm -hmm. important. This isn't something that's coming down from on high that they're sort of not really playing a role in. It's sort of happening to them. Instead of that, they, they really are invited to take an active part in it and to really feel heard. I mean, ideally that is one of the great outcomes of this is that people who, and particularly young people and young women in this example who may not feel heard in many aspects of their lives, that this creates a forum where they're finally feeling like their voice is, is being considered. Yeah. I also just want to jump in and say this kind of speaks to Maria's early con- earlier concern about like the lack of EQ in a situation and if you grow up socialized into a world where like this is common practice all of the players here not just the two sides of any particular issue but you know the folk the kids that have a hand in the mediation or design the system or help execute or monitor it like you develop this norms and ethos around this practice that would manifest later in life too ideally exactly exactly and so we might see you know peer mediation those restorative circles that we talked about earlier you can even scale up a little bit to sort of group conferences where, and and so I want to plug that one place where you can really see this put into practice, which I've only watched once, but it has stuck with me because it was excellent, is a documentary called Growing Fairness. It's uh, from 2013, and it's by a group called Teachers Unite that works really hard on, on restorative justice practices. Um, and 
it looks at how restorative justice has been put into practice in some New York City public schools, and it's really excellent. And you can see this, frankly, this example that I'm talking about, about the two girls who get into the fight and the other student mediates it. And it's really just very astonishing how this plays out in comparison, at least to me, to just my memories of my high school mm-hmm. and the way that at a minimum in school suspension was kind of the go-to, you know, sit in a room all day and miss all your classwork. I mean, who 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 benefits from that? I yeah, will definitely link to that. Mm-hmm. And so there it are some very hopeful examples of mm-hmm. good outcomes coming from this application in the school system. So for instance, Denver Public Schools, after they implemented a district-wide restorative justice program in the early aughts, their suspension rates were cut in half over seven years, and the discipline gap between African-American and white students shrunk by a third. That's amazing. And after a decade of using the restorative justice program, they found that standardized test scores in Denver schools have gone up, and graduation rates have also gone up. So that is a pretty remarkable yeah. outcome, and, and I would think something that schools would really be eager to embrace. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the outcomes are really broad-sweeping. I mean, if, who knows to what extent, like, this related directly to all of these outcomes, but I can imagine it leads to other behaviors and practices just outside of discrete conflicts. Yeah, you I mean, know. for the scientists out there, we don't know the other variables yeah. in different <laughs> public schools during this period, but, I mean, definitely didn't seem to hurt, right? Exactly. It's whatever was going on there seems to have been um, strengthening it. And I think another benefit to having these programs happen in schools is that it shows young people that there is this other model of mm-hmm. conflict resolution, mm-hmm. Um, you know, to the extent that schools are places where we learn how to navigate the world and we learn kind of what what paradigms govern interactions and stuff mm-hmm. like that, it's crucial to have restorative justice happening in schools so that 15, 20 years down the line, it won't seem so foreign to people to adopt this model in the criminal justice mm-hmm. context. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people, and we talked about kind of how this can strike as a bit of sort of coddling or glossing over problems and there, I think that's a an inclination that we have because we are very much imbued in this idea that punishment is the way to bring about good behavior. Yeah. And so I think the one of the many promises of the use of restorative justice in school is that it will sort of expand our thinking about this going forward. So we've talked about how restorative justice can work in criminal justice systems and in schools, but there are like wider implications for how this method can help people come to grips with conflicts and injury of various kinds, right? Exactly. You know, there's some instances of this happening sort of on a national scale. South Africa had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, after the end of apartheid that you know, while not perfect, was at least an opportunity for for national reckoning that seems like it was very useful and and helped the country to move forward. Spain, I think, offers an interesting counterexample because they had uh, a dictatorship for 40 years, and after the end of the dictatorship, there was a national agreement to forget. That was sort of circa 1975, and years and years went on and the problem and the questions really never went away. The forgetting never took hold, particularly because new generations come along and have a natural human curiosity to want to know one's own past. And so 
the idea that we can draw this bright line and, and bury this story somewhere and never look back on it is, in practice, it doesn't. It just doesn't work that way. Like the opposite of restorative justice. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and yeah. just like one other example, there's. I mean, this isn't just a global thing. I mean, um, there are plenty of. This can scale domestically too. And Brian Stevenson does a lot of kind of speaking about this. Exactly. So the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama is a, an incredibly exciting organization and I think unique in the way that they bring together the ideas that we've been talking about with criminal justice, but also this historical memory idea, idea that is true in both the instances of Spain and South Africa. So the EJI has undertaken to put memorials in various places in the South where lynching ha- lynchings happened. They did a very large-scale uh, kind of tabulation of every recorded lynching that was totally unprecedented. The numbers were vastly higher than any recorded estimates from before that. And they are opening a museum. And so they're really doing an amazing job, I think, of tying together how these historical influences and, and our historical memory of what how our country has come to be and what roles various groups have played, how that sort of plays out in the present Mm -hmm. and how, for the instance of racial injustice in the American South, that is, plays out just so explicitly in the criminal justice system. That's great. I mean, and I guess this seems like obviously should have implications for our personal lives too, right? We don't have to be within a larger system to be able to use the kind of models of restorative justice. So like the first thing that I know comes to my mind is like thinking about people who are fighting um, with people close to them in their lives, like breakups or something like that. I mean, I'm so glad you said that because I think (laughs) that like the most amazing pop culture instance of restorative justice that I've ever encountered has happened just this year and it's none other than Beyonce's Lemonade. Yay! So Lemonade is Beyonce's most recent album where she recounts a very personal story of uh, infidelity and her kind of personal journey, uh, arguably it's not autobiographical, but I happen to subscribe to the idea that it is, where there was (laughs) an incident of infidelity between her and her husband. There was, she sort of had, went through all of these feelings of anger and screw you, get out of my life. I never want to see you again. And it's a launch video. Yeah. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I just can't even, but we've all seen the lemonade visual, like visual album. Exactly. And, and, and the, the album, the, pain is so palpable and the yeah. the way that she brings it to the screen is very uh like visceral Emotive, and yeah right and and you really go on a journey with her frankly of all of these feelings of <laughs> I'm, I'm i feel betrayed i'm angry i don't want to see you anymore and then coming to a point where you feel that the rage and the hurt that you feel is actually sort of weighing you down and mm-hmm. and maybe weighing your entire family down and so maybe the punitive pursuit isn't what's going to get you what you want in the end. Exactly. The end exactly. And and finding a way to to reconnect and to ultimately reconcile, but without a forgetting. And so, of course, the genius of Beyonce is that not only did she say, I can move past this, she said, I'm going to make this into my art, and that will be how I deal with my feelings and come to a place of being able to truly move forward yeah. with a concept of what was behind me. Having looked back, yeah. I can walk forward more purposefully and, and with more strength. And frankly, like, reap financial benefit from it. Like, like a, really get yours. Exactly. Get like, what, exactly. Did, what did Jay-Z manage to say to convince her then to release it on his... Uh 
on his label. Or maybe this was on her terms. I mean, like, we can, yeah. we, I mean, we well, can spend endless like, time, you know, speculating about the relationship part of this. I mean, when you first kind of introduced this idea, you know, Lemonade is restorative justice, I immediately went to, like, their actual dynamics of their relationships, but they kind of, they work in tandem. Like, the, the visual album itself is uh, really emblematic of the journey through and to restorative justice in practice. And then what did it take for her to get there with him and have his buy-in in the end? Like, that itself, we can never, we'll never know, but, like, there may have been some of that imbued in what came to be. Exactly. My one question about it, though, would be, we pretty much only hear... Beyonce's voice. Yeah. We don't get to hear from Jay-Z or Becky with the good hair. Yeah. So I wonder what like what that would have looked like if we actually had all voices as we, part of that process. We don't know if they were around the table in the background. Oh, no, but that well, was within the, the context yeah, of the, the video itself. The video. Yeah. Well, we do see Jay-Z at a certain yeah. point. Mm. So that, you know, and that I think for those of us who could have watched Lemonade when it came out, yeah. it was... The, the beginning of it was like, is this a, this is a this is a divorce announcement? Yeah. And then you see him, and it's like, okay, that's not what this is. So you know, I have to imagine that he was on board for this at some level. Maybe yeah. it wasn't the, he wasn't like, oh great, I can't wait to have my business publicly aired this way. But ultimately, he I think understood the the wisdom of it and understood that this is something that she needs and that she yeah. deserves, frankly. But to Maria's point, um, so like a more perfect restorative justice practice for the visual album of Lemonade would be to have additional segments from all these other players where they get to, you know, Maybe a group album. shake it out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still think there's a chance that Jay-Z will have release an album at some point that's sort of his, his version Besides, of things. Yeah. Oh. And other bit players... I don't want to call ever. I don't never want to call Solange a bit player, but maybe she has something to do with this as well. Something to say as a representative of the community. I personally am a representative of the community of listeners of them, so I would be very glad to partake in whatever, really, frankly, anything involving Beyonce. So the concept of restorative justice is built in large part on the notion that human beings can have empathy for each other and come to mutually acceptable outcomes by communicating, understanding each other, and embracing the complexity of each human life. We can try to apply this in our own lives by being aware of our own feelings when we've been wronged and to try to step back and respond, not in punitive terms, but based on what outcomes we actually think might help everyone involved in the situation. And the beauty, I think, of restorative justice is it acknowledges something that has been articulated so well by Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, which is the notion that people are more than the worst thing they've ever done. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at interipodcast at gmail.com. Send us your ideas, obviously. We love it and listen. You can also find past episodes and more info about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and do recommend us to any and all of your friends. And we love and thank Beth for everything today. Thank you. Thank you. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Many thanks to our fabulous intern, Liv Carol Hawk. Music composition and art design by the rad, rad, rad Aaron Taylor Waldman. 
thank you for listening.